0: You are joining with audiences from across the globe to enjoy Hif Player, bringing Harrogate's International Festivals into your home. Sit back, relax, and join us for a discussion into making crime a career, presented by Abir Mukherjee and Vaseem Khan, recorded as part of the Feeks snoor Peculiar Crime Writing Festival. This episode is kindly supported by Thomas and Mercer. Enjoy.
1: Welcome one and all to the Career Criminals panel at Thiexton's Old Peculiar Crime Writing Festival presented by Thomas and Mercer. We are Vasim Khan and Abir Mukherjee, crime authors and hosts of the Red Hot Chili Writers podcast, a podcast that takes a culturally nuanced look at the creative arts, particularly crime writing. That's just a fancy way of saying that we're both British Asian writers and not afraid of using our backgrounds to give you a different perspective on things. Be warned. Today, we're chatting to four brilliant
2: authors from the Thomas and Mercer publishing stable. And um, if they were horses, they'd all win the Grand National. Um, <laughs> who writes this? It must be vast. Um, <laughs> to us, as part of this year's Digital Theakston Harrogate International Festivals weekend, we have Mark Edwards, Susie Holiday, Claire McGowan, and Dreda Say Mitchell. On behalf of the Harrogate Festival and the Red Hot Chili writers, welcome. Shall we start with some introductions, Vass? what do you think? Yeah, let's go. Let's find out a little bit more about these guys. Susie Holiday grew up near Edinburgh and worked in the pharmaceutical industry for many years before she started writing. Um, she's the author of seven crime novels, five of them written as SJI Holiday. Her most recent, Violet, explored a toxi- explores a toxic female, female friendship that unfolds on the Trans-Siberian Express. And her upcoming novel, the one we're here to talk about, The Last Resort, uh, is a mashup of Agatha Christie and Black Mirror. She loves to travel and now combines her trips around the world with book research, possibly for tax reasons. Um, <laughs> <laughs> welcome, Susie. Just um, moving on. Claire McGowan is the author of two best-selling thrillers, What You Did and The Other Wife, as well as the Paula Maguire crime series. She's also she also writes women's fiction as Eva Woods. Her new book, The Push, is out later this year. Welcome, Claire.
3: Hi.
1: And the other two guests that we have, uh, so Drida, is it Dreda or Dreida?
2: It's an
4: Irish, when I say it's an Irish name, people get it, it's Drida. So a long vowel E sound in the middle, Drida. I
1: knew that, Dreida. I
4: knew that. (laughs) Of course you did.
1: (laughs) Dreida St Mitchell is a best-selling author and uh, award-winning author, broadcaster, journalist and campaigner who grew up, like me, in East London. Uh, Drida's writing career started on a creative writing course at at so- Soho's, that just always makes me laugh. Soho's Groucho Club, uh, where she began <laughs> writing her debut novel, Running Hot. She's since written 12 other novels, uh, many with her writing partner Tony Mason, including their psychological international bestseller Spare Room. In 2005, she won the CWA John Creasy Dagger, the first time a black British writer scooped the award. And last but not least, we have Mark Edwards. Who is originally from Hastings uh, but now lives in Wolverhampton for his sins. Uh, he's the author of 10 psychological uh, thrillers including The Magpies and Here to Stay and six books co-written with Luis Bos. His most recent book is The House Guest about a house-sitting gig in New York that goes scarily wrong and Mark has sold about a gazillion books mm-hmm. and before we began this podcast he was just telling us about three people he murdered last week. We hate we hate Mark with all
2: his details. Anyway, and his Wolverhampton mansion. Look at you. Which
0: Uh, which wing are you in today, Mark? (laughs) Which wing? Oh, the West Wing. (laughs) I've I've gone for the uh, Walter White look to kind of go with the murders. So I'm going to keep saying things like "I am the danger" and "I'm the man who knocks." It doesn't sound very good in my voice, does it? No, you need your
4: hat. You're missing your water white hat.
0: I know, I know. I've lost the hat. I left it in the desert. It's in the East wind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, welcome to
2: all of you. Um, it's, it's an absolute joy to have you all on. Um, Shall we dive straight in, Vas? What do you think?
1: Yeah, let's, let's find yeah. out a bit about their, their latest books. Um, the must-have reads that our listeners absolutely must rush out and buy right now, or at least as soon as we have stopped waffling on. Um, Could each of you give us a a, a little elevator pitch about your latest... uh, Who should we
2: we start with? Should we start with Claire because she's drinking, so she's... um, (laughs) Yeah. Is
5: it tea or is it whiskey? Who knows? (laughs) Uh, So I'll talk about my new one, which actually isn't out until November, but I'm quite excited about it. Um, It's about an antenatal group. Um, And I don't have any kids myself, but from what I understand, those are often hotbeds of rivalry and kind of competitiveness. Um, a lot of my books are sort of about middle class competitiveness, which is something that really interests me. Uh, so it's about a group of six couples and their instructor. Um, someone gets murdered at the party at the end of it. Uh, we don't know who it is for a while. Um, so yeah, one of them. Um, so it's set here in South London, which is where I live, around the kind of Crystal Palace, Beckingham sort of area.
2: So, so one one of the um, one of the couples in the NCT classes, one of them is murdered.
5: Somebody is murdered. Yeah.
2: Or oh, some
5: oh. somebody is murdered. Yeah. Well,
2: oh, that sounds amazing. Um, but you don't know who
5: it is until about halfway through, <laughs> and then you find out why. So uh, that's why it's called the push. So someone gets pushed off a balcony.
2: Oh wow! Oh, <laughs> whoa!
5: <laughs> <laughs> I think Mark has also done a book about someone getting pushed off a balcony.
0: Yeah,
4: I have. Yeah.
5: yeah. Do, do not form,
4: if we it. ever go if we ever go to either of their homes, don't <laughs> go near a
5: balcony. Well, I don't have a balcony, so you're safe. You're safe. Uh,
4: so you know, you know that this is going to
1: be coined as a new phrase, Balcony Noir. <laughs> yeah.
5: yeah. You know, I mean, Mark, was
2: your book where with, with somebody was pushed off a balcony, was that in the UK?
1: Oh, yeah, it was also in
0: South London. London.
5: In London. <laughs> London. <laughs> was it in Beckenham? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mine is also in Beckenham. I accidentally copied you there.
0: Yeah, okay, so it's Beckenham Balcony Noir. <laughs> yeah. Wasn't there a chap who tried to throw some kid off the...
1: Was it the British Museum or the Tate? No, the Tate. Come on, Oh God. That
2: was <laughs> come on, Susie. Tell us a wee bit about your new book. Uh,
3: yeah. So my new book is The Last Resort, which is out at the end of the year, and uh, as you mentioned, it's a bit of a mashup of Agatha Christie and Black Mirror. So basically, it involves an island, a bunch of horrible people. And uh, for the Black Mirror part, there's a, there's a new technology there that they don't know that they're there to test.
2: Ah, oh man, that sounds pretty cool. So it's like a, a deserted, small island. What, is it off the coast of Ireland or is it a tropical well, it's, island?
3: It's actually the Silly Isles. It's one of the Silly oh, Isles. I'm it, going uh, there
5: next week. Are you? Oh,
2: yeah, well, hopefully. I'll have
1: if, to watch yeah, out. Yeah, i be writing That's that
2: book as well.
5: <laughs> I've, I've also done a Dodgy Island book. So.
1: Ah, so, Susie, is this in the tradition of um, uh, ten little, I've forgotten what the, the current... And then there were
5: none. There were
1: none. Then there were none. Yeah, which was <laughs> adapted by the... Was it Was it adapted by the BBC again last year? Yeah.
5: Was a it a few years
1: ago, yeah. Adaptation. Uh, so I, I presume one by one, these these individuals on your island start to get kind, knocked
3: off. Kind of. Not not quite like that. But it's basically that it's um, they all arrive thinking that they're there for some sort of luxury retreat type setup and then it all turns out quite quickly that it's not going to be luxury and they're not all going to go home.
1: You know what this sounds like to me, this sounds like the timeshare industry. I, I, <laughs> I was
2: going to say it sounds like this interview, you all came on here
1: thinking <laughs> <laughs> like one of you isn't going home.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Rita, tell us about your new one. Do you know what, I'm in a kind of a, a, a strange situation in that I've just signed up to Thomas and Mercer, so I'm still trying. To work out what my books actually are. So I'll, I'll talk about that a bit later. So I thought to myself, I'm going to talk about Spare Room. So, and Spare Room is a domestic noir, and it starts off with an advert in a newspaper, and all it says is beautiful room to let to single person. And our protagonist, Lisa, slightly troubled, jumps at the chance to rent a room in this gorgeous house. The landlord and lady, They're living there, they seem welcoming and very kind, all sounds great, and then she finds a suicide note hidden in her room, but the landlord and lady actually say that she's the first tenant there, and she's compelled, because she's got her own demons, to try and find out actually what happened, but as she starts to try and find out, the four walls of this house start closing in on her because it doesn't want to let out its secrets. And you know what, Lisa's going to find out that home is actually where the nightmare is.
1: <laughs> I love that.
2: I
4: love
1: that. <laughs> when, you, when, you, when you said spare room, the, I'm sorry, but the first thing that popped into my head was spare ribs. Um, <laughs> really? I'm sorry, I
2: apologize for receiving me sometimes. <laughs> do you mean
4: spare ribs in spare rib, Or do you mean spare ribs in the old ma- feminist magazine that used to be? No, right. no, no, very much. I was
1: feeling peckish. I haven't, had break- oh, I, haven't had I haven't
2: had my breakfast yet, reader. Drida, Drida can, I, can I just say, that sounds like it is made for TV. That, I can just picture that being a huge yeah. series. Oh, uh,
4: okay. I can't say any more about that bit. But well, I'm smiling, let's just say. Oh, no. <laughs> oh. That is good news. Now, we'll we'll thinks- see. We'll see. Interesting industry. We'll see. Yeah. Well, good
2: luck with that. And I think there's there's a gentleman sitting in Wolverhampton that we haven't gone to yet.
1: <laughs>
0: Mr. Right. Walter White, tell us about your new one. Well, it's not saying Wolverhampton or Beckenham, and there's no balconies in it. It's uh, the house guest who say in New York, and it's about a, a couple, a young couple who go house sitting in Brooklyn. And on the um, at the start of the book, a young woman turns up during a storm and says that she's friends with the owners of the house and that if she was ever in New York, uh, she could come to stay. So this couple uh, foolishly and naively let her in. And of course she turns out uh, not to be, <laughs> she claims to be. And it then kind of goes off in a, what I think is a very unexpected direction. So I can't really say much more beyond that initial setup. Yeah. But yeah, it was fun to write a book set that wasn't in uh, in the UK. So...
2: Well, um, both Vass and I have read your book. We were lucky enough to get a copy, and we both loved it. Um, you know what? It's, it's such a page turner. Um, I can see why you sell millions of copies. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sure you've, I'm sure it's brilliant. No, it is. It's, it's a wonderful book. Um, so you've all signed to this new, well, it's not new, but this, um, this imprint called Thomas and Mercer, which uh, some of our, our readers may not have heard of. Um, can maybe explain, you know, who they are and 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 why
0: you signed with them? Because they're they're a big force now, aren't they? They're a big new force. For, Shall I go first? Because I'm the oldest Thomas and Mercer author here. I've been with them since the start. You look the oldest as well, so <laughs> oh, no, I know, I do. Gotta have beautiful hair at the start of lockdown. I don't know what happened. <laughs> you had great hair at the start of your writing career, More. like. <laughs> oh God, well that is true. That is true. Um <laughs> So yeah, two thousand and thirteen is when I joined them, which is when they they um, set up in the UK. I think they'd started in the US a couple of years before that. But Thomas and Mercer is basically owned by uh, Amazon Publishing, and um, that they're the crime and thriller imprint of Amazon. And they're just like any other publisher, really. They they acquire authors, they they publish books, they mainly sell. Um, on the Kindle, um, but also we sell quite a lot of audio books and, and a fair number of print books as well. And they've built over the last few years a really great list. And actually quite a lot of the people that I've known like Claire and Susie uh, and lots of others have come on board since since I've been with them. And it's been really great to see them grow this British stable of, of crime authors because it started when, it, when I started, it was just me and Mel Sherratt were the first uh British British authors so have lots of Americans and over the last what seven years since I've had ten books out with them in those seven years plus two with Louise so actually actually twelve. Um yeah they've built a really good list of, of authors and novels and they sell lots. We sell <laughs> lots yes, we know. <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah. So I'm but not I sure. think <laughs> Can I add, because I'm a kind of a new person And I think, when I think about Thomas and Mercer One of the things that comes to my mind Is it kind of, is kind of a bit of a mirror About the big changes that there have been in the, in the publishing industry So when I first came along The only time people talked about digital um, kind of publishing Was to talk about people self-publishing And people did it in a very condescending manner as well but I think with Thomas and Mercer, with that kind of Amazon digital platform, it really has shown that you can get readers through, and it's just shown how the, I think the publishing world is not just that traditional publishing world and you think about paperbacks, you think about hardbacks, you think about going into bookshops. People's bookshops now are actually on their Kindle and other types of digital devices, and the idea that you can get a book, order it, and it comes straight to you so quickly, I think is one of the big draws with Thomas and and Mercer. And I do think it's one of the reasons it has got such a huge readership, because people know they can get their books almost immediately. And then there's all that advertising. I just think the digital world is really fascinating, but it's very different from a bookshop world, I would say as well.
1: Uh, uh, Taking, going on from that. So Claire, do you think, uh, I mean, the reason that you've, you've gone along with Thomas and Mercer is this because you think that this, this traditional model of hardback and then paperback, which is still a mystery to a lot of authors, why we need hardback and then a paperback when <laughs> it splits your publicity. Do you think that model is, is slowly dying away? Is that one of the reasons why you thought to go with Thomson and Mercer?
5: There is a kind of strange polarization where you get some people get, that, get the hardbacks and the reviews and, and things like that and events, uh, posters, which I'm sure we all like to have as well, but you can't have everything. Um, but maybe they aren't necessarily getting a lot of sales Even though they might seem like they have a high profile And then you get all these authors that are publishing digitally And they might be selling absolutely loads But you won't necessarily have heard of them So it is kind of splitting a little bit um, And I actually, I did actually have a hardback with, with Thomas and Mercer with my first book Which was great But you kind of, I guess you kind of come to see that like, As, as Draida said, uh, your bookshop is on your Kindle That's a great way to put it And there is this whole massively fertile digital world going on so for me, it was just that I'd I'd had a few hardbacks from my first books, um, and then we went to trade paperback. Which for anyone that doesn't know, that might be listening, is those kind of the bigger paperbacks. Which I've never I've never really understood what those were for. Uh, and as I say, they, you split your publicity, you end up with the kind of lots of massive books sitting around your house. Um, so for me, it was like I really just wanted to get some sales and wanted to get my books into into people's hands, and that has that has really worked really well for me. Um, and I've been with. With Thomas and Mercer since last summer and I've done two books already, so that's been really great for me. I also think the editorial process has been really great for me, like mm. if the standards are really high and I've really enjoyed working with the editors there as well.
2: Well can I just sort of pick up on that and correct me if I'm wrong, it seems to me like you know in that sort of online world the Thomas and Mercer badge is almost a badge of quality. Um, it, it differentiates you from, you know, a lot of the self-published people that are, are online. Because, it, 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 you, as you say, they are a, um, like every other imprint, but they move a lot faster and it, there's much more presence in the digital space. Um, is, would, is that right, would you say? No.
4: No, <laughs> I, I would say no. I, I, we self-publish as well,
2: you see. I see. And... Right.
4: And I think what you, once again, it's this huge reflection of the changes in the, in the publishing world. Because mm. what you have out there now, all these people who are freelancers. So we've got a fabulous editorial team in Thomas & Mercer. I think particularly with Jack, who we all work um, with. But out in the real world as well, you've got lots of freelance um, editors. And, you know, I say to people when they ask me about writing, I say I feel very differently about it now. When I joined it, I'm not sure how much of a writer's world I will say it is. Now, I think it's definitely a writer's world because there are so many different pathways. And on all those pathways, you have high quality. And of course, one of the highest qualities you will get will be at Thomas and Mercer.
2: So you think this is about empowerment for the, the author as much as anything? Say that again, Abby, I didn't hear you. This is almost empowerment from the... Yeah,
4: I feel empowered. If you had met me, I think, four years ago, I'm not someone who who, who likes to moan, but I wouldn't have been as upbeat as I am today. And I feel incredibly upbeat because I can do lots of different things. Can you imagine? Here you are as an author. You can publish with an established publisher like Thomas & Mercer, but you can also be doing other things as well. I know we'll talk about... um, you know, different genres, but that's another thing. You can write in different genres. I just think it's an amazing time to be a writer.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. I think now is a, a, a kind of golden age for, for writers because there is so much opportunity. There's not just one way of doing things anymore where you've got to get past these, well, I hate to use the word gatekeepers, but I'm going to have to in this point. <laughs> um, and yeah, there's there's just, there's, there seem to be more readers than ever. Maybe I'm maybe i deluded, but that's what it feels like. There's there's all these opportunities. There's also we're having a golden age in TV and film where the the demand for for content is absolutely huge. So more and more yeah. getting adapted, and and it's it's a good time for screenwriters too. So uh-huh. you often hear doom and gloom around publishing and writing, but actually I think the last ten years has been a, a great time to be a writer. And I know that for me personally, after spending ten, twenty years trying to kind of make it, mm. the digital revolution is what's allowed me to to be a to be a full time writer.
1: Fantastic. Should we should we talk a bit about crime now? So Susie, why why crime fiction? Why aren't you writing romance or something else? Or science fiction or anything? <laughs>
3: Probably anyone who's met me could answer that. I mean <laughs> I'm quite I've always had quite a dark kind of um no, I was going to say personality, but that sounds wrong. Um, I kind of like I like horror films. I read horror books. Um, that's always been my background, like from a young age. Um, I went, I found a big box of horror books in my mum's cupboard when I was about ten, and they were the ones with like there were these scary covers on them with slugs wow. and stuff like that. And um, I started reading those when other people were still kind of reading um, nice children's books, and I think that might have damaged me somehow. However, it has been quite useful for my career as a crime writer, so um, it's just what I naturally fall into. Although, weirdly, I do also, a bit like Claire, I like rom and um, women's fiction as well, so it's uh, I, I think that's a bit of a palate cleanser when I've got too dark with things, but mm. yeah, it's my natural thing. I, whenever I try to write something quite nice, someone normally dies. So,
1: <laughs> <laughs> so do you Do you and Claire both write uh rom-coms on the on the side under different names no clear
3: does clear does i haven't yet but i've I've got some ideas for some things that um i want to work on and that's part of the reason for me going to thompson mercer as well was that um i'm hoping that um by increasing sales it gives me more time to work on on more books because i still have a full-time job as well so um that's kind of my reason for going there so uh yeah all ties in and it all ties in with the uh, being free to write up what you want to and uh, and not you know not being pigeonholed into one little it anymore
2: so. Now Drida we're going to ask you that question because you as, were the first non-white winner of the CWA John Creasy Dagger which is you know amazing how did you get into crime fiction because it was uh, a career path for, for those of us who are the a white of shade of pale
4: shall we say. Um, I didn't think I was writing crime fiction you see I kind of ended up there and then when I realized what an amazing place it was I decided I wasn't actually going to leave. So the book that I run the John Creasy Dagger Award for was called Running Hot. And I thought, and it is, I thought I was writing a redemptive book about a young black guy trying to get out of um, crime and he's got seven days to do something or it's cut put for him. And... My publisher, because I was first of all published by a small independent press, we were talking to a well-known crime writer and she said to us, you do know that's a chase thriller, don't you? He's got seven days, the clock is ticking. And she said, you must submit it for the John Christie Dagger Award and we we won. And then I started going to crime events. And what I found in the crime world was, not only did I think the, the issues that I want to write about, I can naturally do within crime fiction, the crime fiction world, in terms of writers, is a really supportive world. I cannot tell you how many people at the start of my career actually helped me, and they didn't have to do that. Whereas, I think when you go to literary fiction, it's very competitive, and apparently romance people are stabbing each other in the, oh, in, scratch in the back.
2: I <laughs> in romance,
4: <You laughs> answer that right. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Maybe Claire can tell us a wee bit more about that later, but, um, but no, I, I would echo that. I mean, how have you all found the crime writing community? I know, I know Susie's found it, uh, you know, as enjoyable as I have, because we're always at the same sort of festivals, propping up the same bars. Um, so,
3: yeah, friends you didn't know you needed?
2: That's true. That's true. And, and, and Druida, you're absolutely right. You know, established authors, bestsellers will help you out. You know, I remember, I'll
4: remember. give you an example of this. I, I did my first convention. It was a left coast um, crime, as it was called then, and it was in Bristol. And I, and I went, this was what, oh gosh, 2011 or so, maybe just before. And a very tall man came up to me and said, I've been hearing amazing things about your, your book, Running Hot. And I said, oh great, and, you know, typical me, I didn't look at his name bad. And it's only when I saw him later on, I decided to look at his name badge, and of course it's Lee Child that I've been talking to. And you know, Lee has been an absolute supporter since then, right to the point when he invited me and Tony over to, to New York. I've got lots of family there, but we spent a whole day with him and his and his wife. It's that supportive. Somebody at that level doesn't have to support somebody like me, but I find I'm in a world where people decide that they want to. And somebody said to me, they think it's because Back in the day, crime writers used to get such a tough ride from the literary crowds. Oh, it's not proper fiction and stuff. So they kind of club together, and anyone new coming in, we've got The debate crops up every year with, uh, I, I with think somebody picking up
1: yeah, some, think some
2: just stupid the person. personality of crime writers. I think we're just lovely people. Yeah. So of course we
1: are. We
2: just like to kill people every now and then. Claire, I mean, because you write different types of fiction. How did you get into crime and how do you find it compared to um, you know the other the other genres that you write within?
5: Uh, same, same thing really. I grew up in Northern Ireland in the 80s and the 90s so there was quite a lot of crime around. I think we were very sort of steeped in, in violence to the point where it became very normal to just live somewhere like that. And mm-hmm. I grew up in a tiny little village It was very pretty and very rural but there were also soldier, armed soldiers on the street on quite a regular basis. and quite a few horrible incidents where people would get shot and blown up so maybe it was that um, I also read really precociously like, like Susie I was on the Stephen King from I was nine or ten and I think my mother had this idea that there was nothing corrupting in books so I wasn't really allowed to watch Grange Hill at one point for example in pregnancy storyline but absolutely fine to read Stephen King, Virginia Andrews which is also pretty dodgy in a different way um, and I wrote my first book when I was in my late 20s and yeah again had no idea it was crime It just it did have a murder in it so I don't know what I thought it was if, if not crime It never really occurred to me I think I thought I was writing the great literary novel as as most people do when they start out And then when I realised that crime just gives you this massive architecture to your story um, There's always something happening which is the challenge I think in other types of books And when I write a I was, I was writing crime for a while and then I had this idea for a rom-com because I absolutely love rom-coms. If they're done well, I think they're amazing, but it's quite hard to pull them off. Um, and that's when I started sort of writing these other types of books on the side. Well, I started out with rom-coms, ended up with more uplit, which is that kind of genre where it's quite sad. And often someone does die. There's usually not a mystery about why they've died and it's sort of uplifting at the end. Um, but I really struggle with those because I always put too much plot in. So I'm always having to like take out at least half the plot because I've ended up accidentally writing a mystery anyway. Um, and my new one of those books is about um, a couple that meet. They meet in a grief support group where the, both their partners have died, and I've, I, there is basically a mystery in there as well. So everything ends up going towards crime for me. What's, what's
1: that? What's that called? Because I love, I love uplift.
5: Uh, it's going to be called the Heartbreak Club. It's not out yet.
4: Ooh, cool. a great title.
5: Do you no, write... Yeah, it's, it's set in Belfast, which I've, I've never really read. A kind of rom com set there, so that, that's kind of interesting as well.
2: And do you write more than one book at a time, or are you are you writing Sort of projects at different points, or, or how does it work for you? Yeah, I
5: wrote three books this year in the past year, um, which I might try to do a little bit less going forward.
2: But wow. I think really give, give the rest of us a chance as well. Please. Yeah,
5: <laughs> yeah I, think, I think actually, Thomas and Mercer, I was going to say this earlier, is a really good fit for someone that writes lots. So I think we probably all of us do write quite a lot. I know like Susie is madly prolific as well, has loads of different things on the go. Well you seem um, to have
2: upset Mark because he
1: thought he was the most prolific till till uh-huh. two years
2: ago.
5: I think he's just ahead of me on Total books. <laughs> um,
1: Barbara Cartland write a book a week or something ridiculous but she ended up with <laughs> 650 books didn't she so. Well, that's yeah, I mean. but, they
5: were all, but they were always the same book.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I it's need so someone cut. to
5: dictate for me so I can lie on a sofa and just dictate it like she that did. That's what she
1: did. That's right. Yeah, she's lay on did. a sofa and dictated it. <laughs> I, I don't know why I know so much about Barbara Cartland. I really, <laughs> I I've never actually read one, but, yeah. you know.
2: You've looked in her window enough times, mate, haven't you? <laughs> oh, yeah. Butters or pancers? Oh, wait, no, we haven't had Mark yet. Mark, how did you write the presentation? Oh, well, it's the same answer as Claire and thought The the
0: middle aged white man. I mean, what is happening to society? I know, it's all turned upside down, hasn't it? That was Uh, a good journey. uh, 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 It's the same same answer as everyone else. I mean, I started out reading Stephen King and James Herbert and books with deadly killer slugs on the cover. Oh, I read
1: that one, yeah. That's not why you
0: read James Herbert. That's not why you read James Herbert. I read James Herbert, and it wasn't for the rats. Well, we read it, yeah, because I I told you this last time we talked, didn't I? We used to, I used to take my copy of James Herbert books to the playground and read out the dirty bits. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only reason anybody read James <laughs> Herbert. That was that was in the days before the internet. That's how we used to get our kit. <laughs> <laughs> and you just went to the playground and read it off your phone. That was. Nice. <laughs> Oh dear, um, yeah, and then I I kind of wanted to write horror when I started out, and then, but then I didn't actually want, I, I thought it was too easy having supernatural goings-on, so I wanted to have a rational, real-world explanation for all the stuff that's going on, so, so, yeah, my books are crime, they're psychological thrillers, but they always have a little bit of a horror element in them, lots of, I'm, I'm trying to scare people and make them feel creeped out, and... Um, yeah, and I think that th- psychological thrillers and crime just give you the opportunity to write about pretty much anything that you want to, but within this, I've got this template in my head that that every time I sit down to write a book, even if I wanted to write a rom com, it would end up with with I don't know people being gaslighted and murdered and
2: horrible.
3: yeah, mind you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> do your partners
2: ever think that you're weird because of, of the way you think and about how everything just turns out to be, oh you could kill somebody in there? <laughs> how do your other halves feel about your... your
3: Mine, uh, helps. Mine helps with research like that. He comes up with random things about what about if you killed someone here. So yeah, we're on the same oh, page. Yeah.
2: That's pretty cool.
5: I mean I'm sure I'm not the only one that's speculated about what, how you would kill someone and get away with it. I think um pushing down the stairs yeah. is probably the best way. It's probably not it's probably not well, a guarantee.
2: It's not a cruise ship just pushing overboard.
5: Yeah, that's um, true because there's very little investigation of those. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, work in a, I work in a
1: crime and security sorry, uh, I work in a crime and security research center, so I could probably tell you the right answer, but
5: Oh, I'm do tell out us.
1: Out.
2: <laughs> but you know, no, the, the the upside of that is that my wife will never go on a cruise with me, so we're saving a bit of money. <laughs> <laughs> do you know, what about you? Do, do you do you have other people think? Well, you know, what is going through your
4: head? No, no, I'm very lucky. See, I, I write with my partner. So Tony's wow. upstairs writing. He's locked in. Actually, he doesn't. Oh, you? <laughs> <running>. <laughs> <And for Rumpelstiltson laughs> situation. He's kind <trying laughs> of get spinning his gold. No, we've been writing for for kind of years to, together. Particularly from the fifth book, we've made it a bit more. Um, Official, But I got published when I wasn't expecting to get published And I didn't have a literary agent or anything like that And I remember coming home And I'd met my partner Tony at a creative writing course At Donkeys years ago, back in the early 90s In Goldsmiths College, part-time in the evening And I remember coming in and I said Tony, help, help, I've got to do this book I've got a deadline And what we used to do, we used to go out every um, Sunday To Stoke Newington sit down, have a cup of coffee and literally say what happens next? What happens next? And actually that question is really good. So Tony's always been, been there. So it would actually be really odd for me to be living with someone who didn't help with my writing at all, or actually even odder if he didn't do most of the writing.
1: <laughs> Brilliant. I love that.
4: And in return, <laughs> um, you let him out of
1: his, his room once a, <laughs> once a week. So yeah,
2: bridge and water occasionally. You know, <laughs> it sounds like a thriller he's in itself. A dungeon. Where is he? Upstairs or <laughs> downstairs?
0: He's in the spare room. So you in the
4: spare room upstairs. Oh, <laughs>
0: You've you pretty much
1: told us about your process, Tredos. Uh, so what about the others? Are you are you mad plotters, or do you just like to go with the flow, uh, Claire?
5: Uh, yeah. So I actually taught creative writing for years as well, and I, I probably gave my students. Really bad advice because I I don't really I just can't I can't do the plotting um, and I started writing scripts now as well and the world of in the world of scripts you are expected to plan everything in quite meticulous detail and I just can't do it so I I am very much just start and see where we go um, and I think that's fine I've just learned to kind of trust that process and it always turns out okay in the end uh, I would love to be the kind of person I guess that could, you could figure it all out but I would just get really bored I think.
1: That's you could write scripts for Michael Bay. His um, Transformers movies—they have no plot. Doesn't matter.
5: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> How? Insert car chase here. Explosion. Mark, yeah. what's your writing process like? It's chaotic, chaotic. <laughs> I mean, I can't plot either. I've tried, and I've got all the books on structure and saving cats and all that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. But,
0: um, <laughs> And I've read, I try to read them and then halfway through chapter one, I think, I just want to go off and do it. So, yeah,
5: because it gets really boring otherwise for me anyway. Yeah, it's
0: like, I can't read instruction manuals and it feels like an instruction manual for how to... How <laughs> yeah, you're yeah. a man, you don't need instruction manuals, you're a man. Well, true, yeah, <laughs> a middle-aged white man to do.
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I know how to do this. So I, um, no, I just write, I just start off and I just throw everything in that I can think of and I end up with this kind of massive material, like two men, twice as many characters as I need and I kind of usually have a breakdown around an actual <laughs> popping on the floor around the end of act two, to use the terminology And then I'm doing what I'm now doing is so I've written like 80,000 words or something. I've got no idea how the book ends. Um, I've got it's a total mess. And I've now, over the last couple of weeks, I've sat down and kind of actually worked out the plot. And now I'm going back through and starting again and basically copying and pasting and rewriting. And and, and, how
2: how long would that take you? How long
0: is that process, that sort of double process? About six months, eight months I oh, write the first draft pretty fast And then usually the second draft I kind of just go into the zone And do that as fast as I can as well But you, yeah, you don't It's finding the, the, the story Is kind of in there somewhere But I never know I never know what it is Until I've written loads and loads of words It's terribly inefficient But that's how it works That's you. actually what Stephen
5: King does too though so. He says the story's in there somewhere You dig it out
1: yeah. Well, he doesn't. He, I mean, I love Stephen King, but he does—he does write like eight, eight thousand-page-long books.
5: Yeah, so that's, that's, it, that's the second to, part, I guess, is the editing. Yeah,
1: he's yeah. Edited, too afraid. He doesn't do the second bit of cutting yeah. out
4: dead wood. He just
5: leaves exactly, yeah.
4: like hundreds of pages. Oh God, I probably shouldn't say this because
1: he's
4: <laughs> <written>. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I don't know if you picked up. I don't know if I maybe misrepresented me and Tony. We're heavy plotters. We're real, real plotters. I think it comes a lot from me being a teacher. In a past life, and you know, thinking there's an inspector at the door, you've got to have your lesson plan kind of ready. We really, really plot so we know what happens at the start, we know what happens at the end, so we know what we're working towards, and we really do plot as much as we can because we think if we've got it down, when we come to actually write it, we just can get on with the writing.
5: I wonder if that's like you have to if you're co-writing. I don't know whether Mark, when you write with Louise, whether you had to be
0: more okay. well no, a little bit more but it was still kind of making up sorry what about you susie
3: yeah, yeah i'm a plotter as well but i kind of have to be because my day job is um in a completely different field and if i don't mm-hmm. have an idea of what i'm going to write i wouldn't write anything because i have to really slot it in so um i just find it easier if i've If I've got a plan so it might take me about two months to plot before I start writing anything and then when I write I'll write quite quickly and also that means the first draft is usually in quite good shape and I just go back and kind of second draft is more kind of like fleshing stuff out because I've got the main bones of the story down. I've tried to do it the other way and I've got about six novels abandoned at 20,000 words Of the ones where I thought I'll just see what happens and because I get to that sticking point and I can't do it and you know when you're when you've got limited time to do it you you have to be more efficient so that that just works for me now and I'm hoping that I can keep doing that but um I mean it doesn't get boring I know you're saying Claire but um because it does change when you write it as well so it's not like you're fixed to the plan but it's just giving you another another point so that you're never having to sit down and stare at a screen when you haven't got much time and go, I've no idea what happens I, next. I
0: think, I think, I don't think it's a choice that people make, am I going to be a plotter or a pantser? I think it's just that we just have different types of brains. Yeah.
3: them yeah. just can't.
0: <laughs> just <write laughs> Sorry Mark, writing. no, I'm like Susie, I like Susie. <laughs> yeah.
4: I'm not sure you see, I think I think because we came from a kind of, you know, we've all done jobs in our life and the idea that you would go to a job, you'd have your boss and say, well, I'm just thinking it through, you know, I'll get back to you in a couple. It just wouldn't work kind of like that for us. And I think a big thing for us, because we know so many people around us who don't have, you know, left education early on, who want to be writers. We're trying to demystify it for people. We don't want people to have this idea that you sit there and it all comes to you. We've got to wait for it to come to you, you know, as you're having a coffee mm-hmm. in Soho or, or, or something. And it right is sure. a job, <laughs> it has got structure, and you can get it done. And there are tools and strategies that you can use that get you from A to Z, and get you from A to Z in a particular period um, of time. And I think the other thing for me and Tony is, We've got a whole, it's a bit like you, Susie, we've got a whole other life out there. You know, we want to be doing all the other things we want to get on with our, our life. So it's important for us that our writing life is incredibly unstructured, yeah. Um, let's have a bit of fun. Tell us what you would be doing, your dream job, if you weren't a crime writer. Oh,
1: man.
3: Oh, God. I was thinking about this the other day, actually, because um, you know when you're at school and you get to this sort of time where they talk about what jobs you want to do, and they're absolutely rubbish. Like the uh, the, guy, the guy that spoke to me when I was about 15, and um, when I said to him at that time, I either wanted to be a scientist or a lawyer, he said, well, I don't know about that. Perhaps you should think about being a hairdresser. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, really? I would love to be a hairdresser. I also quite like cutting people's hair, not very well, but anyway, um, but the point was there wasn't really much scope for imagination of what kind of jobs. I mean, when I was at school, I didn't even know you could be a writer. I didn't think that that was even a job. <laughs> So, anyway, what I would like to do is, I'd love to work as a set designer or a location finder in films because I just think it's
0: cool.
3: Yeah. But they
5: need to tell kids
3: you can do things like this because how
5: else else do you know that?
1: You try explaining to Asian parents.
5: (laughs) 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 Irish Catholic parents, also. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All these people. I'd like to.
1: They're the worst.
5: Do I'd like
4: to be, I don't know if this is a job, so let me create it. I'd just like to be a professional talker. I just like to talk. I like to chat next to people in bus stops. So I like to get up on the stage and have a good old chatter. I just like to talk. So whatever job there is where you have to do lots of talking, can somebody tell you me can about do it? That. You can do that, but
1: first you have to become the British Prime Minister and then, like Tony Blair, you can be paid £100,000 every time you <laughs> just, to, to, oh. just to talk.
2: Or you, you, need to
4: start, you need to start a podcast. A, so. Not yet. No, I don't want it to be that structured. It's funny, because when I started broadcasting, because I have presented programmes, and I found them really angst-ridden to present them, because all of a sudden I'm in a structure, I've got a script. Whereas if people ask me to come on a show, rock up and, have a, a, and talk, yeah, I'm in, because I'm having a good old natter with you. So that's what I want is a job where I can just natter about yeah. lots of different things in the world.
1: W- unrestricted waffling. That's what you want to do. <laughs> no,
4: no, no, it's all Day good. Four. It's all good.
0: That's what we want. Mark. Meth cook.
4: <laughs> <laughs> you need your hat. You need your
5: hat now.
0: Oh, no, no. I would like to run a karaoke booth. No. Like oh, car- but
5: star. you wouldn't let anyone else sing, Mark. Well, oh, so that's true. You'd go out but of I, business.
0: So I could. I would have a I would have like a special um, guest spot every night where I would go on and, <laughs> and impress everyone. So or the After, after, after would a, you every night, yeah, after exactly, yeah, after and after hours, I'd have it all to myself. So
5: karaoke <laughs> is my
0: favourite thing to do in the world. So yeah, that would I'm be.
5: Banned forever now. So what's your favourite karaoke tune? Yeah. What do yeah. you yeah. like to sing?
0: Uh, well, I've got like a, a huge repertoire of everything, everything you can think of. The one that I always start with is Hound Dog by Elvis, but then I'll move <laughs> on to like, things like Gangster's Paradise by Coolio. <laughs> 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 alcohol goes. flows.
2: That's everything. actually a good question. Let's ask the rest of you here. Um, let's go. Susie, what, what's your karaoke go-to song?
3: Oh, I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm i you here now. i really wait till later on. Yeah, I think we're <laughs> alone now. i wait till later on when the songs are kind of running a bit dry and then I come up with the 80s tracks. So something, some old Madonna or, um, yeah. Tim
2: Holiday. You are also a member <laughs> of the Slice Girls. You're, you're also a performer. You're uh, a member of the Slice Girls.
3: Yes, although we haven't done anything for quite a long time. But, oh, wow. Wow. We are hoping we might come back next year. I don't know, but yeah. Oh, basically... Sorry,
1: for those of us who don't know, what are what are the the Slice Girls?
3: So this was um, a group of um, female crime authors who uh, it started in bloody Scotland a few years back, and we basically um, sat on the bar in a very small pub and sang um, show tunes that involved murder, <laughs> and, um, all dressed up in corsets with various whips and handcuffs and various tools and um yeah it was quite a, quite a spectacle. It, it was quite amazing i have to say because <laughs> I,
2: I was there um and it's one of those things you don't forget you know how they say you always remember where you were when man landed on the moon or jfk <laughs> the equivalent for me the
1: place world. He, was, he was not only there he took pictures then he went to the <laughs> playground and he showed all his friends like mark used to do <laughs> <laughs>
2: Rita,
4: come on. What's your what's your karaoke go-to? Okay, and it's not because I've joined Thomas and Mercer. I will survive by Gloria Gaynor. I love that tune. You know, everyone who doesn't know the words off by heart, you know, we'll it's a real it. yeah, it's a real belt of a tune, and it just applies to so many different. Um, people. I love it and I love that whole kind of disco era as well. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. I, I, I like doing pump up the jam as well. That's a good one.
4: <laughs> yes, isn't
1: it? <laughs> I can imagine you doing sound of the police as well. Do you remember that? Of doing what? Sound of the police. Of the police. Nobody remembers uh, yeah. that? Oh yeah. Claire, what's your favourite?
5: Well, I always do Fernando by Abba. I don't. Uh, know. I, just, I don't really have the vocal range for it, but it's always my go-to. Um, and we want to get other people up and singing. Um, t- Tracks of my tears is a really good one, actually. The f- people don't think they want to sing that, and then they they do. They get really into it.
1: All right. uh, yeah, I have,
5: like Mark, I have a whole a whole series. Of right, I,
1: think they I think want I think to answer my good
5: dream good. job one because I didn't answer that one. Yeah. Um, I always thought it'd be really fun to be a post a post person if I wasn't a writer. Because um, you'd get out and about, you'd see things, get ideas, get some exercise. People are usually happy to see you. But it's generally a
2: oh. bit early in the morning, isn't it? Or oh yeah,
5: that's the big downside, yeah. I'd have to be like an, Not evening, an evening
0: person. Well, these it? days. These it's a wee bit late,
5: isn't it? i oh, after lunch here, so yeah. uh,
0: Has anybody written a, a crime-solving post person?
5: Oh, great idea!
0: I don't think they have. Going with, with
5: the dog! Sorry, call the it dog sorry we you! you.
0: You helps. can call it post mortem. <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> they seem to dress down a lot these days as well. I mean, our postie tends to wander around in shorts and all sorts Yeah. We
5: mm-hmm.
1: complain. No decorum anymore. Uh, <laughs> um, <just> the <laughs> the
5: well, then maybe the post person should be the murderer because they'd be the only link to all the different crime scenes.
1: Oh, that's, uh,
2: that should be really the one right. person
5: that could go and no one would realise, no one would notice. Right. Thomas
2: we're, we're told we are writing this as a group, okay? <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, since we're talking favourites, guys, um, let's go back to crime. Um, <laughs> your favourite ever crime novel.
5: I think Mark and I have the same one. We're like the same person, aren't we, Mark?
0: <laughs> I know. Well, The Secret History. Yeah. Although, um, yeah. um, is it a crime? I mean, it's I guess it's a literary thriller.
5: I think it is. It's about murder, so.
0: Yeah.
5: Several murders.
2: Claiming anyway. it. Uh, Tell our listeners a wee bit about it, for the few. It
5: kind of set the standard for sort of gilded group of young people uh, at a very exclusive college in America, in Vermont. Uh, And they get sort of sucked into Greek mythology, and they do something terrible. And then to cover up the first terrible thing, they do an an even more terrible thing. And it's just a really brilliant study of group dynamics and people kind of slowly unravelling. And it's really beautifully written as well as has a great story.
4: And really, it's Donald isn't, isn't it, Donald yeah.
5: yeah, yeah. And I just wish they would make a film of it. There's a sort of checkered reason of his of history why they've never made a film. I think it would work really well. They've made a
2: film of the goldfinch, haven't
5: they? Yeah.
0: I, is, yeah. What they have? Well, there's
5: something to do with. There's Mark can tell you all about this, but there's something to do with them. The rights are kind of tied up or something like that.
0: Yeah, because Gwyneth Paltrow and her brother were going to make it at one point and then it went into development hell and, mm. and um, I think it's just, it's one of those projects that's not going to come back now and the Goldfinch movie didn't do particularly well, I don't think, so. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that might have prompted them to make a film of The Secret History, but it's not going to happen, I'm sure. But that, that's, for me, that doesn't matter because the book is so perfect. Yeah. They could only ruin it.
5: That's true, yeah, because it's so dense, you wouldn't be able to get...
0: Uh, they should uh, get Michael I... Bay to adapt
1: it. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Transformers <laughs> version, of the secret. We <laughs> have a Bollywood version. You kill Bolivian my friend,
0: uh, I kill you, but first let's dance.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That'd be
5: awesome. <laughs>
0: that's, that's got somebody being pushed off of a high place as well, hasn't it? That's yes, That's uh-huh. one of the murders, so... Well, those, clearly influenced by that book.
5: Yeah, I guess so. I haven't done a college book. Actually, I kind of did a, a sort of Oxford book. There's loads of those around. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: Susie, your favourite crime novel?
3: Mine's uh, quite well known, Silence of the Lambs. Wow, brilliant. Uh, I just think it's one of those ones that um, even if you're not a crime fan, you can read it and it's like a classic, isn't it? It's just that whole dynamic relationship between, the, um, between Hannibal Lecter and uh, Clarice Starling. I think it's just...
5: Do you think the film is better, though? In that case, um, I do think the film is
3: better. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I think that, that. But I think the overall story, just the whole concept of Hannibal, I just really liked. And I think with the when I read it right in the beginning, and then read all the other ones, I just, I just really loved the cannibal, the cannibal like, of. I, I actually <laughs> think the book is <laughs> the of Hannibal.
1: I actually think the book is slightly better, uh, just because. I mean, the movie is obviously brilliant, and and nobody can deny that, but. The book was the original so the movie had an incredibly brilliant book to adapt to so any director worth anything was going to make a good movie out of it especially when you've got Anthony Hopkins and Jodie Foster in it.
5: Oh, I don't know I can see I can see a version which was pretty terrible you can imagine can't you? The, you've seen a version that was, I can ima- I can imagine one with like a very oh. glamorous Clarice or something and it's well, not the first, season.
4: it's not the first adaptation is it? Yeah, of Mindhunter those, uh, previous and stuff and really Red good Dragon. That's and did you yeah. like, so Cle- So, Susie have you seen the series Hannibal?
3: No I haven't because I just it's don't... fantastic. I don't want to taint it though because yeah. I kind of got them in my head and I think, I don't know, because even watching Red Dragon actually, I think I saw Red Dragon before I saw Silence of the Lambs and it was a bit, it just felt like a different character so yeah um, I think watching the series as well will also feel like a different character. I think I started to watch it, and I thought I'm not sure about the, the style. Yeah, yeah, of
4: yeah. It. I think yeah.
3: you almost have to think this
4: is something slight, something else, almost. Yeah. And then get into it, but it is brilliant once you get into it. It is amazing.
0: I've yeah. always thought it's really a really crazy coincidence that somebody whose name is Hannibal turned out to be a cannibal. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <isn't> it? <laughs> <laughs> it's like it was fated. Amazing. My parents named him.
4: <laughs> Shall I say my book? Shall I yeah, say it my book? And it's not really, it's not a book. It's, it's, it's a play. I love, because I don't really read, if I can say this, I don't really read that much crime fiction. I watch a lot of crime on, on the telly and I watch a lot of crime films. But the thing for me in terms of writing is Macbeth. I mean, Macbeth, murder, mayhem, betrayal... And, you know, I had a real difficult time reading Shakespeare at school because I just didn't understand what anyone was talking about. But Macbeth, instant, instant, you know, connect. But I also think it's an instant connect because the power behind the throne is a woman, Lady Macbeth. She is ruthless. She is driven. You know, she's not the type of woman you want to meet down a dark alley. And... um, and that's what I think is, all of a sudden, I think we've with crime novels, because lots of crime books are written by women, but I think all of a sudden the stories about women are kind of coming to the fore again. So I love Macbeth, and I love it because
0: of Lady Macbeth. Didn't uh, Jo Nesbo write a version of Macbeth? Did Jo Nesbo write a Macbeth? Oh,
5: that rings a bell, yeah. They're yeah. all
0: over the world. I mean,
1: there's a Bollywood version of Macbeth as well. Um, and it's called Mac Mukherjee. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure what to make of that. There
2: was a, a version, was it Oscar Wilde? No, no, it wasn't. It was, um, somebody did a version of Macbeth and they moved it to Haiti. Um, oh, wow. This that was, would have been uh, interesting. This was back in the fifties and it was on Broadway. Um, wow. And I think it was the first all sort of um, African-American cast for uh, a Broadway show. And it sold out. I think it was brilliant. And I think it, it toured the country. But yeah, I'd never heard of it. And it was, but it was apparently amazing. Um, Ooh, it really was,
4: I must say. But the best version that I saw, and it was the one that I saw at school, was the one with Ian McKellen and Judy Dench. It's the one that's televised. I mean, and it's just black and white. It's just extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. So if you, Kind of find um, Shakespeare difficult in terms of going to see it. Just watch that on the telly, and you'll just be drawn in. Well, you're a teacher,
1: and a couple of my sisters are teachers. One's an English teacher, and they, they're constantly talking about changing the curriculum now to so for modern teenagers. And but Macbeth is one of the things that most modern teenagers can still get their teeth into because it's so dark, and they seem to like Hunger Games dark kind of scenarios these days. And and I wasn't kidding. There is an Indian version of Macbeth. Uh, and it and it was incredibly well received in in India. They just these things just mm. seem to do well no matter where in the world you put them on.
2: Well, I think I think during um, during the emergency in India where democracy was um, put on hold in the seventies by Indira Gandhi, and there was censorship, um, somebody put on Macbeth. You know, essentially high- highlighting her role as Lady Macbeth, it got through the censor. <laughs> yeah, right. But there it was criticism like of the government, and it and and. and you know, I think there's a lot of love for Macbeth. There's a lot of love for Shakespeare in India but there's a, a specific amount of love for, um, or a special amount of love for Macbeth I think, um, and it is linked partly to that sort of use of it during the during the emergency
1: act. Um, we've got about five minutes left guys, so shall we finish by asking you what you're working on next? What's the big exciting thing that people have to look forward to? Uh, Claire?
5: Yeah, so I've just uh, almost finished a book, which Jack will be pleased to hear. Um, and It's about a British a young British nanny who goes to work in America about twenty years ago, and she gets accused of killing the family she works for, and she goes she goes on death row. They actually have the death penalty in California, which was something I wasn't aware of for a long time. Um, and then she gets out on appeal, and then the present day story starts when she has once again been accused of murder, and she realizes she's being framed. So she thinks someone has worked out who she mm-hmm. is, and what, that, and is I I um I know you. I think that'll probably stick. I think that's quite a good sort of crimey title. So I've been researching loads about death row and wrongful convictions, and it's been really, really quite depressing. There's a lot of them in America. Heaps and heaps and heaps. There's so yeah. many. It's a scandal. Terrible. It is it's really terrible. Scandal. It's really, it's really linked to race as well, which um, is quite shocking. Uh,
1: Susie.
5: Uh, so
3: my next one is well, after the Lashes resort, it'll be out next summer. It's called Substitute. And it asks the question, um, if you could prevent the death of a loved one, who would you choose in their place? Hmm. Wow. Yeah, so it's got a bit of a, it's kind of um, got a slight kind of, it's not supernatural, but there's kind of something a little bit otherworldly kind of dipped into it. But um, yeah, it's... Um, it's, it's got people asking that question because <laughs> in it in it the, the person the, the person who's asked it actually gets a choice of three people to save and three people that they have to choose so it's all about high who, concept who you that's choose that's a, yeah, yeah. Oh, great.
2: great concept how do you as a writer even decide who to choose who to save
3: well I wouldn't like to say who's on my list <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah six of us who you save it's, it's <laughs> <laughs> it's been good knowing you Vass. Um, Trida, tell us a wee bit about...
4: Yeah, so I'm still still working um, it through. Oh, Tony's working on for you upstairs. Yeah, right? he's upstairs, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, what we're what we working on for the first um, book is about a, a young girl. She's of dual heritage, mixed, mixed race, some people might use that term. And she didn't know who her family was. And we have a, I don't want to say what it is, but we have a particular device, but all of a sudden it opens a gateway to her finding out who her family is. And she just wants to meet her mum. And she meets her mum, and she ends up in her mum's house. So she's always wanted to be on the inside. And it turns out she's in the most dangerous place she could be. And so we've titled it My Mother's House. Wow,
2: that sounds brilliant. Mr. Edwards, tell
0: us. Oh, it's about a uh, a, <laughs> a mild-mannered chemistry teacher who's <laughs> uh, <laughs> a
5: mild-mannered karaoke van.
0: Yeah, he drives around in a karaoke van, <laughs> murdering people with song. <laughs> no, it's set. It's a novel set on a um, creepy campsite in Maine. Um, so a a guy, um, goes on, a British guy goes on holiday there with his teenage daughter and they find out as soon as they get there that 20 years ago, um, there was a brutal double murder exactly where they're staying. And so this place has just reopened after 20 years and all these dark tourists have gone to stay there, all these people who are obsessed with true crime. Um, and of course all this, Weird stuff and creepy stuff starts happening around the cabins where they're staying And my main character starts to investigate what really happened 20 years ago and it all connects up with with what's going on now It's kind of my because I've set it in main so it's a a little bit like my tribute to, to Mr. King um, hopefully, he's not going to send me a cease and desist letter. <laughs> <laughs> Get off my land, kind of thing. You're not allowed to say any any horror books in Maine. But yeah, and it's called The Hallows, because oh, that's a
4: lovely title. Thank you. No, really, <laughs> it sounds really creepy.
0: Yeah, I, I, well, at the moment it's a mess, but it will be creepy when I finish <laughs> it. <laughs> Right. Um,
1: Be, you want to sign us out? Uh, before you do, can I just say... Thank you to our
2: wonderful panellists, um, uh, Dreda, Susie, Claire, Mark. It's been an absolute joy talking to you all. Um, we should say thank you to Harrogate and to Thomas and Mercer as well. Um, we've been the Red Hot Chili Writers. Um,
1: we hope you've enjoyed it. Vas, anything to say? You've said everything that I would have said, but worse. Thank you Thank to, you to all the listeners as well. And do do t- check out the Red Hot Chili Writers podcast because we've got lots of interviews with uh, equally talented and brilliant uh, crime authors uh, on there uh, for you to listen
0: to. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Hive Player. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to this podcast. Why not visit our website and download a free exclusive sampler of Susie Holiday's fantastic book, The Last Resort, a gift from Thomas and Mercer? For more information about our arts charity and upcoming events, please visit harrogateinternationalfestivals.com.